Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So I'm kind of excited about today's conversation. It's with a guy by the name of Bradley Pirrick. He's an engineer who's a social entrepreneur who started a social enterprise to deal with the world's water problems. He says that over 50% of all hospitalizations around the world are due to water-related issues. And so what they've done is they've created this filter called TAP. It's really quite amazing. You're going to hear about it today. He talks about conspicuous consumption and about gratuitous wealth a great a great phrase we got into economics it's a really interesting uh, interview today i hope you check it out and uh, don't forget uh, my new book real change is incremental is available on amazon.ca uh, for more information on what i'm up to you can check uh, me out at davidpecklive.com and i hope you enjoy today's interview well, welcome to Face to Face, and we have another interesting interview for you here today. Kind of an ugly day here, late October, pre-Halloween. Uh, we've got a guest uh, by the name of Bradley uh, Pirrick with us today, and he's kind of fascinated by water, and we're going to find out why. Thanks uh, thanks for joining us, Bradley. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, David. So so you're, 
you've got a company in the making. You are passionate about social change. You know, from what little I've read about you on the internet, uh, you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You're, you're maybe an engineer. Tell me about why you're, you're interested in or fascinated by water and, and, and what you guys are up to. Yeah, uh, it's a big question, and I could talk to you all day about it, but uh, let me put it this way. I really like working with water because when I think about the, the really large problems that are facing us, just facing humanity, you know, the uh, energy crisis, specific garbage patch, HIV AIDS, water, it seems to me that for most of those, I don't even really know where to begin. I don't right. know how to solve the energy crisis. I don't know um, what can I do that's going to actually help us solve the HIV-AIDS uh, epidemic. And um, it can be really discouraging, I think, looking at just where do we stand as humanity with some of these huge problems. But water is one that I think is very solvable. Waterborne disease is easy to avoid with simple technologies and uh, and projects that can be done by all kinds of different organizations, from small charities, maybe funded by one church or, or community group, all the way up to massive organizations, right? And I've gotten to be involved in just some incredible philanthropic work that had amazing impact in communities. And it's just such an empowering feeling to see that, wow, with a uh, bit of resources and a bit of effort and some other well-intentioned people, we can work together and just have phenomenal impact for one of the biggest problems facing our world. Yeah, it, Waterborne I mean, disease. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, you, it sounds like you were just going to hit me with a stat, which I think is important, but I was just going to say that, that, that it's just such, I mean, it's not, it's a brilliant metaphor. I mean, it's everything, you know, from, you know, watering the plants in your garden to watching your lettuce and zucchinis grow <laughs> to, to actually changing the world in such a significant way. And having spent so much time in international development, I know the damage that lack of access to clean water can do. Yeah, there's, there's a, a memory that I often go back to that really captures for me the difference that clean water makes. My, my first experience working in international development was about four months drilling wells in Ethiopia with an Ethiopian uh, organization. And there's a moment at the end of the drilling process for, for some wells when you go from, you know, just a loud machine going chugga, 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 putting the hole in the ground for hours and hours on end to suddenly the water exploding out of the ground. And there's this, this geyser that happens hmm. when the water table is pressurized that um, is, is such a profound moment because the villagers always gather around and see what we're doing with these noisy machines, right? It's right, kind of sure. a spectacle. And uh, when this moment is coming, I would, I would kind of step back and particularly watch the elders of the village and see just a look on their faces when their community goes from no access to water. You have to hike for hours to fill your, your dairy can with water, your bucket, and haul it back. And water's really heavy. That's, that was the reality for so many people. And then you bring it back and get sick from it. And it's just this horrible irony that it's so yeah. hard to get the water, and then it makes you sick, and that makes you dehydrated, so you have to drink more of it. And this is the cycle 
that that causes so many deaths from Deep, waterborne disease. Deeply, so this is the context. Deeply ironic, then, too, right? Deeply ironic that the very thing yeah, that's supposed to bring ironic. you life, supposed to bring you life, ends up killing you in 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 the short and sometimes long term. Right. So when when this moment when suddenly water is gushing out of the ground, it's an instant transition from scarcity to abundance. There there was no water. There's so little water, and it made you sick. And now there's this ancient thousands of years old water from deep in the earth that's now just exploding right in in your neighborhood right and it's just such a special thing to get to see and then work with that community in the following weeks as we cap the well and kind of finish the process but then also get to see now here's how this community has changed because they have easy access to a good source of drinking water it's it's just such a special thing to get to be a part of so have you got a background in international development then or was this some sort of school project that you were on or was this more of a commitment uh, you know from from uh, from your schooling and so on well there was a requirement as part of my undergrad engineering degree that we had to work I think it was 600 hours of they call it practical field experience mm. and so uh, most of my classmates worked uh, in Toronto for consulting firms, and that didn't really interest me. Uh, and I managed to um, get a flight to Ethiopia, and I had a job lined up, but it fell through right before I was going to leave, so I went to Ethiopia without a job <laughs> and uh, just managed to, to um, start working with this Ethiopian charity doing water projects all over the country. And that was really because um, so it was an engineering job, so it met that requirement for my, my degree. But I'd been interested to explore if this would be uh, just a good fit for uh, kind of a career path for me. And uh, was it ever? I, I just fell in love with the work and came back uh, completely on fire for how can I get more involved? How can I put myself in a position to be able to contribute something that's, that that uh, can really be a value in this space? And it's just kind of been a, a headlong run ever since then. So do you think, so give us that stat that you tried to do earlier when I interrupted you. <laughs> what, what, yeah, yeah, I'm interested to know about that because my next question is going to be, so is this a solvable problem? Yeah, well, the stat I was going to mention is, is one that still just kind of blows my mind, that half of the world's hospitalizations are caused by waterborne disease. And I, I still find that hard to believe. Yeah, it's so the World I. Health Organization, right? It's, it's the most credible medical body you could ask for. And so when when half of the world's hospitalizations are caused by bad drinking water, and uh, just from my own work experience, I know that treating uh, cleaning water is not hard. It's, it, we have all kinds of good technologies to treat the water, but it seems to me that the products that we've built around those technologies often are not really a good fit for the actual communities, the families that are going to be using them. So that's where I saw an opportunity that we can do this better. We can make a product that is really simple to use. It's easy to teach people how to use, and uh, they can consistently use on a daily basis because it's not going to have technical failures, be improperly used because it was complicated. And most of all, it's not going to just fall into disuse when people get impatient with all the steps and effort that I found with the products that were available to me when I was working as an aid worker for a lot of these charities. So... So you keep talking about this product. Tell us about that. I mean, in this, you know, so here you were, you did your sort of 600 hours of community, ser uh, community service, a practical field experience, uh, right. drilling wells, but it sounds like you've actually engineered and crafted something that doesn't really have anything to do with wells at all. Right. So the, we find the most important intervention point for 
health interventions in general, but especially for water treatment, is the family unit. Hmm. Drilling a well helps the community, and that's great, but there's often a lot of, a, a lot of challenges that go along with that because uh, uh, community-scale intervention um, really requires that community to enter into some form of social contract, usually an informal social contract where they're going to somehow maintain and take care of that. And if that doesn't happen, then it falls into disrepair. And this is an age-old story that's happened so many times. So I really became interested in the family scale. What can we do for individual family? Because a family changing their culture, changing their behavior, is a lot more achievable than trying to transition a whole community at once. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at what's available for one family to put themselves in a position to have safe drinking water. And... um, I've worked with a lot of different water filters, a lot of different technologies in a lot of different countries. And one example I'll give is uh, my wife and I were living in the Philippines, um, let's see, two super typhoons ago. This is a, there was a, a typhoon that hit right in Manila, a city of 12 million people, and suddenly the city is under a meter of water. Hmm. You can imagine what that does to yeah. a city where, where a large portion of the population is in, is in really serious poverty. Um, and I was there working with uh, a bunch of different water charities, kind of liaison between a number of groups, and uh, suddenly when this happened, they're all turning to me saying, Bradley, what do we do to get people safe water? And I found myself in a position, suddenly now I'm a disaster relief worker, so up until then I'd been uh, a development worker. And all of the options that I could give to, to our partners were just really not realistic for that situation. They were complicated to teach people how to operate. Um, We'd have to go family by family, teaching every single household how to use the filter, and then often we'd find afterwards they weren't using it properly or or they weren't using it at all because they'd gotten frustrated. So I became very interested in developing a water filter that would be so simple that anybody can learn to use it right away and and a product that would be really low effort that people can just keep using without having to do some, you know, all kinds of steps and, and maintenance processes and that sort of thing. So we've made this really simple water filter that we call TAP, T-A-P-P, um, with the idea being even if you don't have plumbing, you can have a TAP. Anybody can have a TAP. Mm. And basically it's a small cylinder, roughly the size of a pop can, that um, has a hose that goes into the top to, that you put the end of that hose into whatever source of water you have, a uh, jerry can, a bucket, whatever container the family already has. And to, to filter the water, you just pump it up and down a few times to prime it, and then you turn it on like a faucet, and clean water comes out. Hmm. And that's all there is to it. And so with this filter, um, the reason that it can be so simple is every time you pump it up and down to prime, the filter is cleaning itself. So that way there's no maintenance process. There's no other steps that we need to teach the family. It's just a matter of pump it up and down when you want to start, and then turn it on like a faucet, and it'll just flow from gravity and there you have your clean water. So would so so help me understand it a little bit. So would would you take that and stick it into potentially like I don't know uh, uh, a rain barrel, uh, and and sort of hook it onto the bottom of the rain barrel so that the rain barrel now is your water source, pours through the tap filter, or would you pour the water in some other way, like um, you force feed you force feed the water through this filter presumably. Yeah. So that hose that I mentioned has a clip on it that you can just hang over the edge of whatever container you have. Okay. Um, and uh, so, it, so the far end of that hose is underwater in the container. 
And um, because it works by gravity, you want that container to be up high, and then the, the hose hangs down and the filters at the end of that hose. So that's lower than the surface of the water. And so it can flow downhill through that hose um, into whatever receiving container. So it could be could be as simple as a hose and a bucket on your roof, or it could be a little more sophisticated with plumbing. Even you could actually yeah, exactly. We find yeah. most people um, just use it in their kitchens. That's sort of the, the default place where people they fetch the water and, and bring the bucket or whatever container into their kitchen. So that's a great place to treat the water. So if um, the usually it would be uh, the mother or the wife of a family who who end up doing this. Um, just put that container on the on a shelf in the kitchen and have a clean container down lower, and then just pump the filter up and down to get the flow started. And when you turn it, it just starts filling that second container. So you've you've designed this uh, with with who primarily in mind? Is this going to is this um, is this going to be distributed by you know aid organ and relief organizations? Uh, is this who you're hoping you're going to sell this product to? Because you're this you're you're not you're not your company and where you want to take it. You're not a charity. More of a more of a social entrepreneurship or social enterprise. I guess. Yeah, I'm social saying. enterprise. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we designed it with families in developing countries as uh, the users. We've really done, uh, we've actually tested in seven different countries as we did more and more rounds of prototypes to really hone in on a product that would just be really well suited to those families in developing countries, wherever they might be. We've tested all over the world. And as you mentioned, the, uh, the best way to get the filters from our production facility here in Vancouver to families wherever they be is to work with charities. So we uh, our, our first deployments, it looks like, are going to be in the Philippines and in Haiti. And we have some partnerships that we're developing in Ethiopia and Lebanon and possibly India. And really just working with basically the sorts of charities that I used to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, Because they, they have great networks on the ground in, in the different countries. So uh, it's really a natural to to partner with them. We have a great technology, a great product. They have a great network, um, and we all have the same objective of let's get a lot of a lot more people staying healthy by drinking safe water. Is it the kind of thing that a charity could say come alongside you and say we want to fundraise for a water initiative, and we're going to say to people that you know, like I love the line that you said, you know, everyone can have a tap or everyone deserves a tap could be a nice campaign phrase. Um, that, uh, you know, as a charity, and I'm not one, but I could raise, say, 100 bucks to purchase X amount of filters that we would then ship overseas. Is that kind of what you're hoping will happen with this product? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely one of the ways um, that we're already receiving interest from charities. We've got uh, a school here in BC who raised money to donate uh, filters to be used in Haiti. And in that case, they didn't have just being an elementary school, of course, they didn't have boots on the ground in Haiti. So they've asked us to give it to one of one of our partners in Haiti. And for other charities, um, they already have that network in the country. And uh, in some cases, they already have a budget for a water project. And so it's a matter of, you know, evaluating our filter and then placing an order and, and plugging it into that project that they already have uh, the structure kind of set up. In other cases, it's a matter of charities saying, hey, we'd really love to work with this. We see a great opportunity in country X, and, um, and then they go into the fundraising process to, uh, to, to build that project. 
Do you think, do you think uh, Bradley, that's what's going to change the world? Do you really, th um, do you think that, uh, you, you know, you've got this experience as, as an engineer, you've got this experience working with the nonprofit and charitable world and development in, in, in the global south, and now you're turning into a social entrepreneur and, and developing the social enterprise. Do you think that's where we need to head? Is it going to be more about, you know, um, selling products that are going to make a difference that are going to change the world and making a profit doing that? Um, or, or, or is there maybe another way? Well, I think, I think you said a key phrase there, which is where we're going to head. I think it's a direction. I don't think there's one right. step or one approach that's going to be like here, this solves everything. Now it's all, all better. Right. But I, I wish that were the case, but, but I, I don't think it is. Um, but the direction that I'm really excited to go is um, the first step is what we're doing right now. It's working with charities, giving them uh, just a really amazing tool to be able to do their work better, to be able to be more effective with water projects in developing countries. And one of our biggest goals um, here at our, our TAP team, one of our biggest goals as we go through this step of, of of working with charities and, and growing in that market is absolutely learn everything we can about how to do this better and better. I think that ultimately um, charities, uh, philanthropic work in general is um, a really important component of what needs to be done to help families in developing countries just to be better off. Um, I don't think that charity work is going to solve the whole problem. I think it's one tool in what needs to be a bigger toolkit. So fantastic that we can get up and running and start working with charities. And then um, I'm really interested to see beyond that in the future, how can we work with selling directly to the end users, um, marketing the product to these families, getting it to uh, a price point where families can buy it directly or, or structuring the pricing. In one case, one of our partners is using microfinance to do that. Um, and really learning about more tools in our toolkit, developing more ways to help families get safe drinking water. So you don't... You don't another, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you don't, you don't believe in Milton Friedman's notion of, of the, 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 the sole purpose of business is to increase profits or the social responsibility of, of business is to increase profits. You've got a much more uh, clearly, uh, you know, you just kind of unpacked it there. I mean, you've been doing it right from the beginning of the interview, but you've got a much more holistic idea about where the free market and where capitalism should really head. Yeah, you're, you're touching on some big concepts. I yeah. think I'd say I I wouldn't I wouldn't say here's what all businesses should be doing, and I'm you know I have I have solved it, and here's what everybody <laughs> right. here's how here's how the businesses in the world should right. uh, should structure themselves. But I think I think what I feel very comfortable saying is here's what we want to try because we feel that there's a lot of potential to be realized by this approach. And we want to explore and learn how to do it better and better. And these first steps right off the bat, um, uh, we're getting to do some really cool things even from day one. And as we learn about, uh, as we learn how to do this more and more and, and have a better and better impact as we go, um, I think it comes back to a direction, which you mentioned at the beginning. I think um, this is a direction that we're really excited about and really passionate about. And I think more broadly speaking, even outside our own company, there's, a general movement towards, uh, use the term social enterprise earlier, it's a movement towards people being more and more interested in um, working in a way that 
has an impact beyond um, just making money for the company that you're working for. Right. I think I, I absolutely don't disparage that at all. I think that um, our free market economy achieves amazing things, and that's fantastic. And I think that in addition to that, people there tends to be there seems to be a shift right now toward more and more people saying, "Okay, I've got this education, I've got this skill set. Um, how can I use that to?" have a positive impact in the world. And I think that's really exciting. I think it's a really exciting time right now just to um, see in the past 10 years, especially the past five years, there's been all kinds of new conferences springing up every year, more and more um, talk about social enterprise, about about working for an impact, um, whether it's environmental, social, all kinds of different positive impacts in, in communities. And um, I think we're really at the beginning of this. We don't We don't know what this thing is yet, we're just kind of yeah, beginning yeah. to learn about it. Yeah, no, I think and, that's, that's uh, how yeah. exciting is that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, one of the things I've talked about in the last couple of interviews that I've done, I've had an international development focus, and I brought up the Liberal Party and their notion of, you know, the triple bottom line. It's not their idea, of course, but they've tweaked it just a little bit, and it's it used to be people, you know, some some call it the you know people, planet, profit, as opposed to the you know the 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 bottom line, which is about profit. But they've tweaked it and said people, planet, and prosperity. And I think there's something really interesting, cool, and deeply relational about the notion of prosperity that we're trying to increase wealth. There was a Credit Suisse report that just came out recently. In fact, uh, while I was uh, just recently got back from Cambodia, I read it in the Phnom Penh Post, uh, $263 trillion household wealth increase last year in the world. 34% of it in change was in North America, 32% in Europe. It's over 60, what, 67% of the the of that 263 trillion is in the white western world and mm -hmm. meanwhile according to this report the inequality and the gap uh, grows mostly in what they call you know developing nations so there's something radically wrong with that, it seems to me. I mean, maybe the raving capitalist in the room puts up his hand and says, no, that's exactly how this whole economic system is supposed to work. And then slowly, a lot of it will trickle down, right, through the through the filter, through the water right. filter. Um, <laughs> but I'm, you know, having spent a lot of time in, in, in that part of the world, I'm not convinced it's it's happening anywhere nearly as quickly as it needs to be. Um, I'm certainly not against creating wealth, but when you say that 67% of that 263 trillion last year happened in, in our part of the world, I don't know. I, 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 it doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think another, another trend that is quite worrisome uh, is, well, we saw it with the, uh, the Occupy movement that really brought the idea of the 99% and the 1% onto everybody's sort of collective awareness. As as um, as prosperity and wealth becomes more and more concentrated, that that's a very unstable situation, right? That if the same trend continues for another 10, another 15, another 100 years, it's becoming more and more a more and more extreme case of what we have now. I don't know. I don't know how that falls apart, but I don't see it continuing that way. I don't think that that uh, that's a long-term situation that could just continue, right? Um, so even for even for the people who are most benefiting from the current systems, those of us in the, the rich countries who have very high quality of life, I think purely from a Milton Friedman uh, self-interest um, perspective. 
having more equality, I think, is fundamentally good for everybody. Mm. Maybe equality isn't isn't the right word because I think if every I don't think we want the whole world to live in a North American standard of living. That would cause um, all kinds of other problems. Sure, it's would completely yeah. unsustainable from a, from an environmental standpoint, right? And um, I don't think that having you know equality itself would be communism. Everybody having the exact same amount of of everything. But I think having maybe balance is a better word. Having something closer to balance, I think. It's just in everybody's best interest. And, you know, that's the purely, like you mentioned, the um, laissez-faire economist in the room that you mentioned. Um, I think that's what I would say to that. But from my own standpoint, I'm, of course, I'm very interested in social justice. It's, it's really hard for me to um, see conspicuous consumption when I know the value of a dollar. I know, I know uh, how much a little bit of money can change somebody's life in, in other parts of the world. Yes. So do you, you know, I, I really, I'm tempted to take the conversation down this route because one of the, one of the things that uh, fascinates me is when, when is enough with the question of when is enough enough? And, you know, um, you can never have enough clean water, it seems to me, but I think there is a time when you've got enough money to live well. Um, and, and at what point does it become that, you know, that you've, you, at what point have you actually crossed an ethical line uh, or, or have you ever crossed an ethical line? And I guess, again, the, the, the free marketer, the, 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 the capitalist would say, no, that's what the system is based on. It's based on individualism and self-interest and growth and, and, and so on. But it's the obscene nature, I think, of wealth that I find deeply troubling and this inability to see others through the filter of wealth, if that makes sense. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I think there's, in this, in this sort of fairly new conversation about social enterprise, I think there is uh, a direction that that conversation can go um, that I don't think totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it, can, it can become a conversation of of demonizing wealth and um, uh, looking at profit through a lens of like, okay, let's sort of make a polite amount of money. Let's make a little bit of money or let's cover our costs, but let's not be for profit in the sense of making a lot of money doing, um, whether it's a social enterprise type company or just conventional business, as if um, viewing that as being being, um, the enemy. And I don't think that's helpful or... or, um, completely on target because I think, uh, so you mentioned earlier, we're setting up, we're building TAP as a, a for-profit yes. uh, structure, not a not-for-profit. And a lot of thought went into that decision. I bet. And um, some social enterprises um, will be for-profit, but not really have profit be uh, a significant goal. Like, okay, if we can make a bit of profit while we're doing this, then we're able to keep doing it. Okay, that would be great. Let's be for-profit so that we can um, have a profit margin to maybe be able to grow our operations a little bit and keep doing it. And I think um, I think that's there may be a time and a place for that, but I think often I find it a little bit disappointing when that's the approach because I think that it's it's thinking small and that mm. the power of free market is is that when something is for profit, it can scale way way more than something that's not for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. Uh, I want our company to to make money selling tap filters, and in fact, I want our company to make a lot of money 
selling tap filters because it grows our ability to make more tap filters and sell more of those. Mm-hmm. That also grows my personal wealth. That's absolutely, I say that without, without any you know, qualms, that um, if this company does really well, I will make money. The mm-hmm. company will grow in value. All of our investors will, will make a bunch of money off their investments. And, and unabashedly so. I don't think there's any, um, I don't have any, any problem or, or hesitance with any of that. And I think that the place where I start feeling uncomfortable, is I used the term earlier, conspicuous consumption. I, I, um, uh, I think that wealth can be a wonderful thing, and I think it can also be a very ugly thing when it's completely focused on self. Mm-hmm. Uh, having, a, having a great quality of life and, and uh, you know, a uh, comfortable home and being able to provide for your family and giving, giving your family the nice-to-haves in addition to the need-to-haves, I think that's all great. I think when it becomes just gratuitous, that's when right. I start feeling pretty uncomfortable with it. Right, right. Um, I'm really interested to, to build a very profitable company because I've been involved in some charity projects that did absolutely phenomenal work, incredible impact. And five years later, eight years later, the scale of the operations are still roughly the same as, as they were five years ago. Right. With a business, if you... If you hit a home run and just have a, a, an absolutely incredible business, five years later, it has the potential to just, you know, be a hundred, a thousand times bigger. You can, you can really, really yeah. grow it. And, and that's well, what I get really excited about. Yeah. And the potential for change, you know, assuming that you are in the business of change of one kind or another is significant. It's exponential, you know, uh, I, I remember having a conversation uh, with somebody and trying to tell them about my company, So Change, and what we do, and and I kind of explained it to him. And he was a guy that worked for a large auto auto manufacturing parts, also an engineer, and and I said, you know, I'm I'm working on the assumption that all companies are doing good of one kind or another. We just want to come alongside and amplify that. And he looked at me with a funny face, and he said. Okay, as if to say, and this guy's a, you know, he's a capitalist through and through, and as if to say, hang on, I don't think my company's doing very much good, (laughs) which I thought was kind of, you know, honest, but also interesting and and funny at the same time. I I think you're right. I I hope you're right, uh, Bradley, about the direction. I hope you're right about the trend. I I hope you're right about the shift because I I think it's necessary. I don't think it's currently... The, the current model, if you want to call it that, is is ultimately sustainable. What do you think about young people? You know, the Mita Wees of the world, the Free the Children's. Are, are young people going to change it? Are they are they thinking differently? Are you a product of that sort of Mita Wee generation that said, hey, I know what fair trade coffee is. I mean, I understand what, you know, a sweatshop is, and I don't want to be a part of that, and I want to, I want to, and that's how this kind of bubbled to the surface for you in some way? Um. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do think that this this shift that we've been talking about is largely happening in the younger generation that's joining the workforce. Um, a, a mentor of mine, a fellow named Bob Dell, is um, he's a retired engineer who worked in uh, in the water industry and and then got involved in in creating charities. One of them was a charity that I worked for for years. He says that when he came out of university, he also studied in Toronto, that he and his classmates. The, the prevalent mentality was like, okay, now we've got this this engineering degree. Great, we can make a lot of money. Let's all go out and see where we can get jobs that are going to just make as much money as we can. And he he said that was his own mentality. And 
and broadly he thinks um, that was representative of much of his generation. And he he speaks very excitedly about now when he talks to people my age, when he talks to um, people in university still, there's, there's a much more prevalent mentality of, okay, I've got this degree, I do want to make money, I've got student debt to pay off and whatnot, and I want to, I want to get a good paying job, but how can I do this in a way that is really going to have a positive impact? How can I be proud of what I'm doing and, and be passionate about, about what I'm achieving beyond just using my degree and my skill set to, to make money? Um, and I think, uh, let's see, I'm kind of trying to connect two thoughts here. Though, no, I think you're absolutely connected, connecting but, them. But uh, um, to, to what we, just to come back to a, a point we were talking about earlier, I think the potential of that is um, when, so, so we started off the interview talking about the, the large problems facing humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And something I found quite discouraging, actually, when I first got involved in, in international development work is in a world where half of the hospitalizations are caused by waterborne disease and the, the work that we're doing to address that often tends to be village by village, it seemed to me there's a huge disconnect between the scale of the problem and the scale of what we're doing to solve it. In, in many cases, um, I'll, you know, we'll be in a, in a truck driving out to a project where we're, we're doing a water project out in some remote community, and, and it's in a village out in, the, out in the, some remote area. And on our way to that village, we drive past a thousand other villages where we're not working. And I always just feel really weird about that, that, okay, mm. here's all these villages we're not working in on our way to get to the village that we're working in. Okay, we're working really hard and, and in many cases having a really wonderful impact in that village that we're working in. But what about all these other ones? There, there isn't really, for, at least for the work that I've been involved in, there hasn't been uh, a realistic, concrete plan for, okay, here's how we're going to go from what we're doing now to operating at a scale that can really positively impact all of those villages. So that's where I got very interested in markets. I, I started taking business courses kind of by night school when I was an undergrad and then in graduate school. Just every free minute I could, I was, I was over at the business school, even while I was studying engineering. And um, just wanting to understand how do markets work? Uh, it seems to me one of the best tools we have to achieve big, hard things is, is, is to use markets. I don't really know much about them. And, and I just started learning and learning and learning. Because if we, can, if we can learn how to use markets to solve these problems, I think then, then suddenly we have the potential to address problems at the scale sure, that they sure, exist at. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, as a philosopher and, and uh, somebody who's kind of um, a little, probably a little more cynical about markets than you are, I'd, 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 I'd want to say something along the lines of, I'm with you 100%, Bradley, but can we also make them just a tad more ethical along the way? And, and across the board is, and, and I don't know how to do that. And I think, I think part of the way to do that is how you started answering sort of my question about youth and young people. And I think there is a shift and my kids are six and nine and I see the shift in them. I see the change in them. I see the things they talk about and think about and, and they're involved in a way that I'm not. And I, I'm involved in a way that my parents were and so on. And so I am pretty hopeful about where we're heading. So again, back to what you said earlier, I want to validate your comment about the trend and the direction it seems that we're going in. And I agree, it, it really is exciting. It, I don't know about you, but it gets me out of bed in the morning, that's for sure, for the most, yeah, for for sure. the, for the most part. 
seven yeah. seven out of ten days, I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the world. I'm gonna turn it upside down. But then those there's three out of ten where you just what what have I done? <laughs> but that's a battle, hey. Yeah. Like, yeah. Theodore Roosevelt talks about being in the arena, and I think, um, like that's the that's the struggle between hope and despair mm. that anybody who works in development mm-hmm. experiences on a daily basis. So every single trip I take, there are days when it's just like, boy, what are we doing? Yeah. Is there yep. any chance that we're actually gonna crack these problems? Yeah. Other days where you just you know, absolutely on fire. So, yep. so Energy. excited about the people that you get to meet and yeah, the work absolutely. that you've done. Yeah. And, and to your comment earlier, I, I, um, really recognize that I am very, um, idealistic and, and, and I, just my nature is to tend towards hope. Um, sometimes I think in the face of, uh, pretty convincing <laughs> evidence to the contrary. <laughs> in, in the face but, of despair, um, yeah. Right, and, and um, I think part of the reason that uh, this, this um, movement towards social enterprise is really seated in, in the, the youth population is we tend to be more idealistic and more hopeful, right? Right, right. And um, I, think, I think it's important to recognize that. And at the same time, I think, I think that's great. I think... Um, if I, I may, I may become more cynical as I, as I, uh, get older and, and experience, um, maybe whether it's a market's just really burning people and having a really bad impact or, or a lot of, uh, unfortunately there's a trend in development workers to become very cynical. Oh, everybody who works in development I, uh, starts off very hopeful and often, you know, often there's a lot of cynicism when you sit around a table with some older development workers. Deep, deeply cynical. Yeah. And, and I think it's a real shame. And, and I think that's. That's something that we as, I mean, I think people who are like yourself interested in social change, social entrepreneurship, who are hopeful uh, and, and idealistic, and I consider myself the same, maybe I have a little bit more of a cynical edge than you do, but at the same time, how do you maintain that? How do you maintain that sense of hope? How do you say, how do you get out of bed in the morning and say, you know what, we are making a difference. Things are changing. This world is a better place than it was yesterday. Yes, it's a mess when you flip open the newspaper or Time or McLean's or The Economist, but you know what? It's a better world than it was and lives are being saved as a result of the work that we're doing. It's a, it's a tough one to, it's a tough world to live in, you know? Like you say, how do you stay in the arena and feel good about it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a book, I'm just looking for my bookshelf here, that kind of speaks to some of the things that you're mentioning. Um, here it is, The Rational Optimist. The Rational <laughs> Optimist, I like it. <laughs> um, there's a, I think maybe I first heard about this through a TED Talk or something, but there's a, a pretty strong case to be made that, um, and I, I don't have it all, all the numbers and data and whatnot fresh on, on my head, but I'd, I'd commend that book to you, that um, so the media obviously is going to show us whatever sells the most ad space, and that tends to be bad news, not good news, right? So there's a, there's a bias towards showing us how the world is, is doing terrible and everything's awful. Right. But, um, and, and that's not, that's, you know, on a case-by-case basis, I think that it's generally true things that, that were being shown, but there's a lot more to the story. And um, the, the story arc of humanity, I think, is really curving in a positive direction. That if you look at the, the number of, you know, the, the rate of, of violence, of sexual violence, of, of um, genocide and um, just poverty and, and death by starvation and all of just the terrible things that can happen to people, 
in general, those things are, I think all of them or all, almost all of them are trending in really positive directions. I think the one glaring uh, exception is the environment. The mm. environment obviously mm. is getting worse and worse. But in terms of social justice, in terms of people, um, we're doing pretty good. Yeah. The world is, I, I think that there's really um, compelling um, argument that, that the world is getting better and we don't, we don't see it day in, day out because, because there is this bias towards, towards focusing on the negative. But um, I, think that, I think the only question, like the only question that I really kind of uh, still wonder about on that is, well, how quickly can we make it better? Yeah, I think that's sure. the challenge. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's work really hard so that it's not... It's not, you know, for a given problem, it's not five generations from now that we've got it solved, but it's one or three generations, sure, you know, sure. all those people in between now. That's more people that get to, that get to benefit. So, um, hey, listen, we gotta, we got to wrap up, but I want to ask you one last question. How did you, so you sort of started to go down, you know, you mentioned that some of your friends, you know, when they came out of, had to do their, um, their, their, their co-op-like nature of their degree, ended up working with, you know, firms in Toronto. You didn't want to do that. Why not? Why not? Tell me a little bit about your personal passion for this change, for this better world. Boy, I'm not even sure what to tell you besides <laughs> that you're. Well, I worked. I worked. Uh, I guess what I'd call a conventional desk job. Right. Uh, yeah. At one point, and nothing against that. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people who live long and wonderful lives in that type of work environment, and if it's a fit, I think brilliant. And, and for me, it wasn't a fit. Um, and so I had to think a little bit farther outside the box because I was just pretty unhappy, um, mm. being in a cubicle working for a company that was owned by another company. And if I did my job really well and that parent company was going to make more money and I just didn't really care very much, but <laughs> right. it's hard for me to be passionate about that. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, for so many people working a job for uh, a corporation that's maybe not directly doing, having a social impact or that sort of thing. Um, if you can if you can support your family and and live a good life, you know more power to you. I absolutely don't. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I just found in my case um, that type of work was just not really sure. suited to my personality. I think so. I, I I went pretty far outside the box and ended up in Ethiopia, and and that's where I found something that I just fell in love with. So that was that was my journey. Yeah, it's cool. It's great. Well, you know, I think a lot of people are having that journey, and I really do. And I, I teach at Humber College. I have a, between 60 and 80 students, one, one term, one course a year. And for the most part, I am always uh, encouraged by what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, and, and what some of these uh, postgraduate students are, are getting involved in and the questions they're asking, and it's, it's exciting. So uh, uh, good for you, and I wish you a, gr a great amount of success. Um, I just want to end with a quote here that I, I, I found on a Globe and Mail piece that was written about what you're up to uh, from, from a little while back. And, and you say that, quote, my goal was to make a water filter that is so user-friendly that you can give it to a child anywhere in the world and without any training or written instructions, that child can immediately treat any water, available water to drinkable standards, close quote. That's a pretty specific and uh, and by the sounds of, I was going to say lofty goal Bradley but it sounds based on my conversation with you today very doable so congrats and um, um, thank you so much for, for your time uh, with us today David thank you so much